meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is From Aggression to Violence, Finding Another Way. Where does the tendency to escalate aggression that's located within ourselves come from? Is it human nature? imprinted within us since the beginning of humankind? Or can the teachings of Buddhism and Shambhala inform our capacity to experience the instinct for aggression in ways that transform or at least neutralize its activity? If we look further, does it help us to understand the violence of war, and in particular the war in Ukraine? How can we learn to respond appropriately? This talk is a continuation of our ongoing series on compassion and the war in Ukraine, and is hosted by Jenny Bates and Steve Clorfine. Jenny Bates joined the Shambhala Buddhist Sangha in 2000 and went on to lead classes and direct Shambhala training. She has a degree in music from Edinburgh University and holds graduate degrees in music therapy and social work. Steve Clorfine has been teaching, performing, and writing since 1974. He is a founding arts faculty member at Naropa University in Colorado and a co-founder of the Sky Lake Meditation Center. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's Jenny and Steve to take away the discussion. Um, so th- this follows... Uh, the first in the series was by Vegan Aharonian, and he really focused, it was a little earlier on in the, in the war in Ukraine, and he really focused on the war, um, Ukraine's role, Russia's role, and from his point of view as a Russian-speaking Armenian-born uh, person. Um, the second in the series was by Rachel Farrow, and she really focused on the Tonglin practice. Uh, and what we're, uh, Jenny and I are doing this evening is we're really concerned and focused on um, exploring the movement of aggression, uh, both inward and outward and back and forth. So I'm going to begin and um, Jenny and I'll be going back and forth <clears throat> on this. So what we're Um, focused on is really the movement of aggression inward and outward and how they how that relates to each other and how that can move into more violent situation so if we take take it from the beginning from uh, buddhist teachings on the three poisons passion aggression and ignorance we'll be focusing obviously on aggression. So simple definition of the poison of aggression is the human tendency to protect our ego, protect our territory, 
to make ourselves feel safe under you know, whatever conditions we're, we're, we're in. And what this can produce is basically a fear of the unknown, whether it's our own state of mind that changes all the time and presents a kind of groundlessness or uncertainty to us uh, from moment to moment, really, um, or fear of others who are different from us and who don't fit into our comfort zone. And that's where things really get um, heated up, you could say. Some of you know the sadhana of Mahamudra that uh, is really one of the great signatures of Chigam Trumpa's teachings. And in that he, he writes, I'll just paraphrase this, that we need to free ourselves from the fear of an external phenomena, which are our own projections. And what does he mean for, by uh, our own projections? There are several classic examples of this that are given in, in, in Buddhist teachings and in stories, teaching stories. And the simplest one I know is um, the story of a rope, which in dim light appears to uh, us as a snake. And <clears throat> since many of us have an instinctual fear of snakes, we project onto the rope, we project that fear onto the rope, which we mistakenly perceive to be a snake. So if you would, just for a moment, and if it helps to close your eyes, please go ahead and do that. Take a moment to imagine something that startles you. For example, a loud sound in the middle of the night or an unexpected knock on the door on the window of the very room that you're sitting in right now. If you can just access imaginatively uh, your, your somatic reaction to something like that and notice what it brings up in you. And this would be a good point if you want to just jump in and very briefly uh, describe um, a sensation or, a, you know, sort of <clears throat> cognitive activity that occurred, um, you know, just please, please go ahead um, and just see if anyone wants to jump in and say anything there. Hi, um, this is Kathy, and um, I'm just uh, living adjacent to a dam that's a project that's been started recently, and they are starting it with a lot of blasting. Well, only a couple of times a day, but once or twice, and but almost every day. And sometimes the sound, well, always varies. Sometimes it's so loud that it shakes my house. And when that happens, um, my initial senses, even though I knew it was coming, I mean, I didn't know precisely what time, I, I guess I should say I didn't know it was coming, um, kind of shakes, I, I just jump and it stops my mind. And um, in the context of this exercise, I could just, um, 
think about my Ukrainian friends who um, have experienced blasting and what that must, and just a, a, the slightest inkling of what that must have been for them. Mm -hmm. okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, by strange coincidence this morning, I was in the office in a session with a client and there was indeed a completely unexpected knock on the door. And it, it was like a moment of, you know, freeze, like sort of what's happened? Who's this? What's wanted? You know, what's going to be my reaction? And then, then it was, a, then my reasoning brain came on board and said, well, I guess I better go and see who's at the door. And I excused myself and got up and went to the door and it was simply a maintenance guy wanting to know when he could put in the air conditioner. So, you know, from the initial response of help, you know, who's coming, am I safe? Uh, with some pausing and some recognizing of a little jump in my heart or a little racing of my past as to whether I was safe or not, um, it, so, it was sorted out because I was able to say to myself, uh, to, to, to behave in a reasonable way and not to follow through on my frightened response. So when a threat uh, when a threat to our safety is perceived, or even as Steve said to our ego, um, what is known in neuroscience as the flight, fight or freeze response is activated. And the threats to our safety can be um, any really many things. Um, it's in the animal world, it's um, a natural response to survival. Um, they, this, this response is all about safety and survival of the individual and survival of the species. And it's something that we have in common with the animal, with animals. Part of our brain is indeed very similar to the animal brain. And this, um, you know, we could perceive any, anything can be, can be conceived as, an, as a danger, whether it's somebody with different hair from us, somebody with different skin color, some whose clothes are different, who speaks in a different way, who behaves in a different way. Um, all these things can be perceived as threats to our safety. Now, the, the thing about this part of the brain that responds to threats, it's called the amygdala, and apparently it's scanning for safety every four, four times a second. Every second, our amygdala is saying, am I safe, am I safe, am I safe? All this is happening unconsciously. Thank goodness. Imagine if we had to deal with a conscious thought of, am I safe, four times a second. We would not, we would not be doing very well. So this is something for which we are grateful. It's very, it's very um, important that we have something that if we step out in front of the street and a bicycle is coming zooming along, we know we can go straight into a response that we, that's involuntary response over which we don't have any conscious, con we, don't, we don't do it consciously. I imagine all of you can remember a moment when you responded suddenly um, with no conscious thinking like, rescuing a child who's running out into the street, for instance. So 
the other the point also to make about this natural instinctive working in a part of our brain is that when the amygdala as i mentioned is what we call activated and it isn't activated all the time it may be scanning but that doesn't mean to say it's activating this fight flight freeze response point to understand is that when you're in that state the prefrontal cortex goes offline as is said so you don't have access to what the prefrontal cortex in our brain does, which is to reason, to connect, to um, you know, those two functions. It does a lot, the prefrontal cortex. Um, but that's the point, is that when we're in a fight, flight, freeze response, we are unable to use our rational reasoning, connecting part of our brain and our being. So a separation happens and the other person, whatever threat is, becomes an other. And uh, we have a response to fight it. And some of you may have had a moment where you've instinctively just pushed out your hand, push somebody away if you don't feel safe. Or if something is uncomfortable, you, you run from it, or you can just go into freeze, into, into stillness. So, um, what, what we know is that we're looking at how aggression can move outwards from our own being. The fight response would be an example of aggression moving outwards. Aggression can also be turned inward. And we are, I, I consider that the inward, the inward turning aggression results in things for us that we're probably also familiar with, like saying to yourself, when you leave, leave your keys behind or lock them in the car, you say, what an idiot. You know, how could I have done something so dumb? So I consider that a form of in the aggression turned inwards, critical, blaming, judgmental self-talk is also a form of aggression. And I think what Steve and I are on wanting to really look at is how aggression resides within us and we learn not to take it out and act it out. But what we're seeing in the world is aggression that's turned outwards with no reasoning going on and it simply turns into this, um, all the things we know about outward aggression. Inward aggression can also be, along with the critical self-talk, low self-esteem. You know, I'm not worthy. Um, I don't deserve that. Um, blaming oneself. And it can go on further to be, be more destructive into addictive behaviors and self-harming. So um, I think we're looking at both. We're looking at the way Steve said aggression can turn in on ourselves and aggression can go outward. So. Yeah, I also have a sense that um, you know it's a, it's reflexive um, to internalize uh, criticism for a lot for a lot of us. <clears throat> um, the way we've grown up, the way we were parented, the way we were educated, the way we um, <clears throat> didn't know very much about being in relationships when we were younger, and that internalization of of, of criticism is. It's, it's obviously demeaning, but it can also become habitual. 
um, where we blame ourselves for the slightest mistakes or mishaps, as Jenny said, you know, like losing your losing your keys or um, you know tripping over a, a, a step, and you know, actually, in the Shambhala teachings, we often teach, or in Buddhist teach and Shambhala teaching, we often talk about moments like that as a gap or a wake-up call. Um, and some of us have, you know, really practiced accepting those as on on that on those terms, rather than on the terms of you know what a what a jerk I am, you know, um, which is it's it's very important um, the the way we talk to ourselves, because the way we talk to ourselves is going to affect the way we talk to other other people. You know, if we get um, habituated to criticizing ourselves, it's going to bounce back and, and be very easy to criticize other people. And then it bounces back to the pain of why did I criticize that person? So you create this kind of cycle of uh, in, inward and, and outward aggression. And this is obviously, this is a low level kind of aggression and it feels very important to explore it in ourselves if we're trying to understand where violence comes from, where self-aggression uh, can turn into self-harm, can turn into addiction, can turn into suicide and, and, and so on and so forth. It's not, it, these are not big jumps. They, it's, they, they have more of a, it's, it's more of a stream that can, that can work that way. So it's really important to notice the way we talk to ourselves and to uh, reduce when, when we notice that, that kind of self-criticism to reduce it by just coming back to being present in the body, feeling some uh, you know, kindness, some acceptance for ourselves, for our limitations, uh, and also at the same time, you know, some sense of congratulation that we notice things. That's so important. It comes up all the time. I mean, the meditation practice is the basis for that, really. That's what can really support us in mediating these, um, these low-level habits of aggression. So, Jenny, I think you were going to go on and say a little bit more about, about the sitting meditation and that. Can, and that. Yes. Yeah, well, the, the next question, having asked, you know, where does aggression reside in, within us? And how does it go out? We then asked, how do the Shambhala Buddhist and the Buddhist teachings and the practices of meditation, meditation help us to um, reduce the tendency to act out inwardly or outwardly on aggressive impulses? So um, Shamatha Vipassana is a good place to begin. And here we are instructed in our sitting practice to sit, to notice, to, to whatever comes up in the form of thoughts, images, memories, impulses. And um, maybe some of us even know that sometimes aggressive thoughts to another or aggressive thoughts to oneself can come up in your sitting practice. And we're instructed just to sit with these feelings, just to notice them, let them be, open up to where we feel them in our body. Notice that sooner or later, the feelings and attendant words, images, stories fade, and we move on to the next experience that arises. Of course, we're using the breath to ground ourselves in this process. So we can develop in our meditation practice awareness of what's going on inside us 
and importantly, develop a tolerance of discomfort. Some of these feelings, these quotes, negative feelings are very uncomfortable to sit with. Really, really wanting to blow your top at somebody who insulted you or somebody who let you down or a moment where you really failed, you didn't live up to your expectations. Um, just to sitting with what that feels like and, um, and then to contain the impulse to take action, be it verbal or physical. We can be curious and we can identify the aggressive feeling and just, as I say, remain curious about, wow, look at that. I really, really wanted to shout at that guy. I really wanted to run away from that moment. I couldn't bear that conversation anymore, whatever it might be that comes up. So, um, so this experience is an, a practice of noticing how our natural energy of our minds produces ongoing streams of thoughts that move both along storylines and sometimes jump around at random. We speak about meditation practice as becoming familiar with the patterns of movement in our minds and thereby developing not only acknowledgement and recognition, but some degree of friendliness towards ourselves, as Steve said. So um, this is part of the practice of meditation, minimizing, neutralizing, letting go, are all things that we can do to lessen the tendency to act out either on ourselves or others. We do this over and over again. Um, I like what Pema Chodron has offered as three principles of practice. You are all familiar with Pema Chodron, I'm sure. Um, and she gives three, three principles. First, recognize what's happening. Second, interrupt the chain reaction. And third, connect with the immediacy, immediacy of the experience. First, we recognize what's happening. Second, we interrupt the train reaction. And third, we connect with the immediacy of the experience. That might be what we, Steve is going on to talk about, the felt sense. And I think this could also be called the pause, not, not pause, but pause, P-A-U-S-E, pause practice. Um, anything we can do to just stop in the moment, notice it, wow, my heart's racing. Gosh, what do I want to do? I have an impulse. No, let me just pause even longer. Breathe, you know, we're always told to just breathe. Um, anyway, that would be one practice that we could use to begin to reduce, as I said earlier, the tendency to act out rather than to contain and allow to be, to be felt and slowly to fade as we stay back in the immediacy of the moment. I'm breathing, I'm here, I'm on the cushion, I'm in this room, I'm safe. Mm. Yeah, I guess the other, the, you know, to just take it a little bit further into what's the, uh, noticing what the somatic expression of it's called, it's frequently referred to as felt sense, but where, where is it? Where am I feeling it in my body? And you can actually do a scan. If you can, you know, if you can sit with it, then the first thing to do is try to locate where, where it is in your body. And the most common areas that I experience are 
in my throat, in my jaw, my jaws, my, uh, my heart, my chest, my belly, um, or even just you know, t tightening, tightening, tightening the shoulders. And if you can notice where it is, if you can locate it and just stay there, don't try to do anything about it, but just stay there. Often, as soon as we have a strong feeling or even a feeling, even a, a sensation like that, we try to relax, relax reduce it. And I, I, I don't know. I think that sometimes that feels like, um, uh, you know, sort of going, going past the actual present, being present with it. Just to be pre present with it without doing anything about it and developing a sense that I can, I can do this over and over again. I can try to locate where a strong feeling is in my body. And I think we have this instruction in meditation practice as well. And, um, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's, e it, it's, it, it's easier in meditation practice because supposedly I'm by myself, nothing much is happening, you know, but if we can transfer that experience into, you know, what's called post-meditation or our lives, then we can really begin to integrate body and mind. We're always, we hear that expression so much, you know, integrating body and mind. Um, but of course, it's, it's really a matter of repetition and recollection that would allow us to reduce these aggressive tendencies and even to neutralize them. I wanted to tell a little story um, that um, something that happened to me in India some years ago. I was coming out of a small museum uh, in, in Rajasthan it was very, very hot, very, the sun is very bright. And I came down this dark staircase and suddenly into a very brightly lit courtyard. And as soon as I stepped into the courtyard, this um, intense spray of water hit me in the face. And I looked down and there was a, I looked down and there was a little boy with a water rifle and I just smacked him in the head. As soon as I did that, I, it's like my heart, my heart stopped. I just didn't know what to do with myself. He froze. I walked away and I sat down on a, on a stone ledge and I just watched him sort of go back and mingle with his, with his friends. And when I thought the time was right, I, I caught his attention and I motioned him to come over to me. And I just put my arms around him very gently. So I think the reason I'm telling this story is, first of all, it's very strong in my, in my memory and what I, what I felt at that moment is very easy to recall that kind, kind of remorse, but to, to say, to point out that there are ways that we can make amends for aggressive behavior. Now that's a very, I think, striking example of it, but I think simpler examples is to be able to just say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't really mean to say that. I didn't mean it to come out that way. I know that this is something that's, uh, you're, you're vulnerable to and I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I wish I hadn't done it. Please accept my apology. Those are sort of everyday ways that 
you know, we can make amends for aggressive behavior. Now, how we explore to make amends to ourselves is, um, has a lot to do with um, compassion practices, really. And one, one of the ones that, um, again, from Pema Children's teachings, that's been very uh, helpful to me is a little practice that she calls just like me. And it's, um, it's, it's very simple. Whenever you notice that you're in a public situation or a situation where it's, there's another person around that you sense yourself distancing from that person or not liking even, even as simple as going, God, why is that person wearing those clothes? You know, If you catch it, you just say, just like me, just like me, that person wants well-being, wants kind, kindness to herself, um, wants to be felt for the human being and the dignity that she or he has. So I wanted to mention one other practice that you can uh, actually read about in, in, um, in Pema's um, in, in one of Pema's books, I'm trying to find the title here, but I'm probably not going to. I think it's in um, being comfortable. Com com comfortable with uncertainty, maybe, maybe that one. Anyway, it's. I'm just going to say briefly. It's 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 a um, compassion practice where there are seven steps um, to loving kindness. And when I've I've done this um, with groups of people, the first step is compassion to yourself. That. Uh, I, I, it comes from that first line. Um, may we have, have ha ha um, enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. So may I, I like to translate happiness as well-being, kindness to myself. Um, so that's the first step. And then what I, and then the la the fifth step is taking someone who really disturbs you, someone you're in conflict with, and using that, those same lines and that same practice. May so-and-so who drives me crazy, who's in, really hurt my feelings, hurt me terribly. May that person enjoy well-being and kindness to herself as well. And what I find is that that first step and that fifth step are the hardest ones. For, one of those is the hardest ones for people. The second step, which is to uh, towards someone you you love very much. The third one towards um, you know a good a good friend. The fourth one towards someone you call a neutral person. Those seem to be much easier. But the first step to bring compassion to yourself, and the fifth step to bring compassion to someone you're in conflict with. Um, are very difficult and um, the ones that I think make that practice extremely valid. So, um, you know, if, if you if you want to look look that up, it's it's right in that I think comfortable with uncertainty. Seven steps in uh, compassion practice. Um, mm. Back back to you, Jenny. Yeah. Um. So I, um, I was, as we were preparing this talk, um, I recalled that the Sakyong Bipam Rinpoche has said that enlightened society 
begins with two people. And um, we're obviously looking at the moment in a society where things are really seem to be getting violent. Aggression is out of hand, violence is out of hand. It's just uh, sh shocking where we're at. But I think that if we can develop these practices of kindness towards ourselves, noticing what we call the triggers, the things that, you know, off we go um, with two people. If the two people have that kind of practice, then kindness and compassion and consideration and respect and love can, can grow. And I think that would be um, part of the definition of an enlightened society. And I love that. I love it. It's so easy to, it's so difficult to think of an enlightened society as a whole thing. But if we understand and take the Sakyang's teaching that it begins with two people, then I think we can begin to get our heads and our bodies and our minds and our behaviors and our hearts around, we can do this. We can do this with practice and with care and attention, mindfulness and awareness. So, um, of course, what we're, what we're really moving into is how, how, is this okay, Steve? I think I'm moving on a bit. How, yeah. does, how, do, how does aggression become this violence? Uh, or, or, you know, this is, this is what we're, we're witnessing so painfully and feeling so painfully. I, um, it was Lanny um, sent a little YouTube clip of a, I'm going to cry even as I think about it came from Ukraine, a song, a lullaby song, and with shots of um, pictures of um, hurting children, frightened children. And- um, It's a lullaby to a mother. So it was very focused on, on women, women soldiers, women carrying babies, children, um, soldiers carrying um, children away. Yeah. And, women uh, soldiers carrying children, female yeah. soldiers, yes. Anyway, I'm sorry, that's just, just um, that clearly it hardly needs to be said uh, how appalling uh, war is. What can we do and this violence and turning it out towards others? I think that um, one of the things I would want to say about it is that um, not only is this comes from this animal response of the fear of the other, but when you combine that with erroneous, false beliefs, then you get a particularly toxic, violent situation. So that your cognitive state, what's happening up here, disconnected from heart, it tells you that it's okay to go ahead and and be violent and kill another person with no compunction. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it, it leaves me speechless to think of being in that state, but we know that in our country, hate groups are on the rise. And we know that in Ukraine, an appalling war is being fought. Both Russian people are suffering and of course, Ukrainians. Um, and one can only, only pray and do Tonglen. So Tonglen, of course, is one of the main practices we have to um, ameliorate uh, the, the sense of helplessness um, and to hold within us. I don't know what happens for you when you do Tonglen, but 
little images of the appalling, you know, dead bodies, broken buildings, crying, frightened children come up. And in the Tongling practice, we can bathe those images, just flood them with whatever heart feeling we have. And um, it seems to be a benefit, certainly to myself. And I guess we're believing that it has benefit, positive impact um, away from us. Yeah, I think so, that, you know, one also one of the sources to come back to is again, something that's very prevalent in, 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 in Buddhist teachings and in other teachings as well, is that b this basic um, flaw that we carry in us as human beings of us and the, us and them. And we're always looking for um, those who are us and those who are us tend to exclude those who are them. And uh, um, I think it's, it's, very, it's very important to try to keep bringing it back to us that we're all us. There is no them, you know, um, e even though it somehow satisfies our baser um, manifestations as human beings to have the them out there to separate from. So I know that Vegan spoke a lot about that in terms of, you know, Russian soldiers who are, who begin with not knowing why they're doing something at all, why they're even going there. And then they're fed the, delu the delusions of the mastermind who is, a, who is de deluded, just like the 18 year old the other day is, was, is deluded. Um, so how to, hold, how to hold that, how to hold that, you know, we, we do have instincts to feel us and them and that we can, we can move to bring that, to bring that together in very small ways, repeatedly over and over again, particularly given what we know from meditation practice and from the teachings that we've studied. And it, I'm not talking just about Buddhist teachings, but any, any teachings that have awakened our um, sense of heartfulness and um, inclusion. I think um, I just, I think the last thing I, I, want, I want to say before I just pass it to Jenny who closed our part of the conversation is the Black Lives Matter movement for me personally was one of the biggest wake up calls I've, I've had in my life in terms of how insidiously and covertly my own sense of us and them was residing and playing out and how through studying and listening and really looking into myself a, a, a different kind of um, ability to open up and not be pushing away what is what was what seemed so much like other you know I could take in the great parts of it but I had to push away the other the other parts of it like walking on a dark street at night you know that that kind of thing I think we all have that experience so um, I think that 
there it, it, there's a question of holding opposites. You know, there's this there's there's this terrible violence in our society. There's this growing sense of separation, and at the same time, there is a potential that we have because of this to open up, to dig in a little bit more, to really work on ourselves so that we can go outward and include and be us. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. So I was just going to end with on one of the um, Tonglen sessions um, I attended, there was um, a, a Mr. Oleg. I'm sorry I didn't get his last name and I haven't been able to find out who this Oleg wonderful person was, but clearly a Buddhist Shambhala practitioner. And it was an example for me, a beautiful example of how we can put our Buddhist teachings and our meditation practice into action. He was, it's going to be hard for me to say it as well as he said, but um, he said that he, he was talking about his feelings towards and reactions towards the Russian soldiers, the people who were invading uh, Ukraine, where he lived. And he was able to, he, he had held great equanimity as he was speaking. And he was, he could use his teachings to remind himself, this, this, these Russian soldiers are under delusion, under delusional thinking. They're not really in their right minds. And he was then brought tremendous compassion towards another person who is acting violently under the, um, under sort of false delusional beliefs. And the gentleness, the gentle tone in his, in his voice, the, of his voice, his body language was such that I really felt this is Buddhist practice about aggression and violence in action. And uh, I was extremely grateful to have witnessed that and heard it. And it has strengthened my practice to understand that all the players in this require our compassionate Tonglen practice, our compassion practice. Thank you. Um, great. So um, let's open it up to um, conversation. Uh, anyone who'd like to respond to anything we've said or um, ask a question, question what we've said um, or speak about your own experience um, in terms of inward and outward aggression and how it manifests. Um, please feel free, just either unmute yourself or do that little thing. Um, is it reactions, Bobby, that you yep. click on? Yep, and then you can hit raise hand. Yeah, raise hand, okay. But whatever, whatever is easiest for you, please go ahead. Bobby. <laughs> um, one thing that uh, came up, uh, Jenny, when you were talking about self-talk and how important it is to have kind self-talk to yourself is um, a lot of times my self-talk, especially when it's uh, aggressive towards myself, it's like I'm otherizing myself. I'm like, you idiot mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. me. So it's mm -hmm. like, okay, well, mm -hmm. 
I'm, I've created an enemy and then I guess by contrast created this idealized, you know, person or something um, who I should be or, um, and so I'm, yeah, uh, recognizing that maybe um, having a little bit more of a open kind of self-talk where it's not kind of uh, attacking myself or, or praising myself, I guess, in that sense, but um, just kind of um, feeling and uh, recognizing, you know, with uh, without trying to turn myself into some version of myself that I'm perceiving, or, yeah. you know. You know. That's neutral. right. Thank you. Yeah, being Thank neutral you. in the face of what you notice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Not trying to correct it, study it. Being curious, right? Curious, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I wonder if you have can share any thoughts or comments on because we can practice these techniques. Um, but yet there's a time when we need to recognize skillful means to communicate, it's like not all or nothing. So, and I, I can give you a tiny, I think a succinct example. I do feel at times aggression towards my sister because she's a fundamentalist Christian. Mm. And I have acknowledged to her that I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> I care about her, I want her in my life. But I feel, and sometimes, and, and but that's, you know, and that's just a microcosm of, of the world, of the, of the crazy 18 year old and who drove to Buffalo. I mean, and I'm not, you know, I, I'm not, I have no plans of violence, but, but you can, we can set and we can set and we can recognize, but we still want to interact with our society and the real people around us where we have differing opinions. And, and my, I think the heart of my question, the pith of my question has to do with how to recognize skillful means. Uh, easier said than done, I know, but. <laughs> yeah. It's a very, it's a very important question and very pertinent to how we are in our society and you know, families are, are, are driven apart, relationships are, are driven apart by holding very opposing views. And as you say, um, thank you so much for bringing up skillful means. I think it's something that Steve and I could have also talked about and to applying our practices. I don't really know what the answer is, um, Debbie. I think that at the moment, um, if I were to meet somebody who was a fundamental Christian, I would probably I would probably feel that I do, couldn't say very much to them if they were a family member. Um, well, actually I recently had an example. Um, I was walking with my son and um, it was when Roe versus Wade had just been leaked. And I started talking to him about the importance of protesting this overturning of the Roe versus Wade ruling. And he said, um, he, it, the way he spoke, I understood that he thought that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. But in other words, he was a pro-lifer. And it was the first time I'd ever really met 
that certainly in, in, in a closer at my son. Um, and I found that the only the skillful means that I could draw upon in that moment was simply to listen. I noticed that I, I stopped myself saying, how can you believe that? You know, but these are, this is somebody else's body you're talking about. You know, I, all my indignation, I just managed to really just contain and give him a chance to, and I was curious about what he was going to say. Yeah. We haven't continued the conversation, it kind of ended. Um, but um, I think there could be further skillful means if I think about it. So thank you. I think, you know, Jenny, I'm going to take a little pot shot there because, um, you know, when I hear you say pro-lifer, I realize that part of the problem is the way we use language. Language. Mm -hmm. that, we pin, that we just pinpoint people as this or that. Um, is, is he a pro-lifer or does he have serious questions about the right rightfulness of aborting a, li a life you know does he call himself a pro-lifer you call you comes up i refer to him as a pro-lifer for simplicity's sake you're right and well that's it but that's i mean yeah. I, that's you know that's one of the things we do all the time that's an us mm -hmm. us and them i mean i would never be a pro-lifer i would never call myself a pro-lifer mm -hmm. that that kind of thing it's um it's I mean, language is, language is part of what diminishes the, the personal connection to things that, that are going on to some, to some degree. You know, you just say, oh, uh, you know, Hamas threw missiles today. You know, no, two guys threw missiles today. Not Hamas, two guys threw missiles today. I mean, this is coming up a lot in, in um, more, um, I would say, open-hearted uh, journalism. Yeah. That, you know, it, so much of the media is provoking and, and deepening this distancing, this us and, this, this us and them. Mm -hmm. yeah. But uh, Debbie, I would also just want to say it's, it's slow and repetitive. It's like every single time, just being able to hold that feeling that you have, that disappointment, that um, sadness, that sense that you know you want to be together, but you feel separate. Those are that's like what you know what we call holding opposites. They both exist in their own truth. I want to be with my sister, and I don't like <laughs> I don't like her beliefs. I don't like her belief system. Hold them together. Mm. And also, just a, 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 I once heard Kondra Rinpoche say in response to a question of a, of a young woman who was agonizing that she kept telling her parents she was a Buddhist and they kept sort of rejecting it. And Kondra Rinpoche said, don't tell them you're a Buddhist. Just behave like one. <laughs> it's a great, great moment. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because then you have to figure out how I behave as one, which is really tough. <laughs> um, okay. Mm. Daniel. So um, I guess this is more of a contemplation in terms of this transition or progression from aggression to violence and um, the different examples or forms of violence that we're speaking of. And um, the example you gave, Steve, um, 
I think is is extraordinarily common and thanks for sh briefly sharing it, uh, which in, in some ways is um, happened so quickly, whether it was the fight amygdala firing off and short circuiting prefrontal lobe. Um, but it, it represents a kind of loss of control. Um, and where we have so many people in our society who are not in touch with any sense, reflective sense of self or own emotion, it doesn't take much of a trigger for us to experience a continuity of out of control, violent um, effects. And, um, and so it, it shapes the kind of, uh, or tears at the fabric of society. Um, but then on the other side of the spectrum, the, uh, another form of violence is violence as very expedient, um, well-rationalized internal logic, uh, skillful means. And um, there's a very uh, clear internal logic, you could say, that's been developed through some form of rationalized thinking that, um, all of a sudden now <clears throat> the self and the act of violence becomes transcendent and it takes the form of terrorism or uh, the shooting that we saw in Buffalo, the war. Um, and from a practitioner point of view, you know, I find two very different um, kind of responses and um, uh, just difficult you know, challenges in terms of how do, how do we work with these. But I, I guess what I just wanted to offer was that I think it's important to realize violence, this progression happens from both loss of control and someone's very deliberate, you know, um, building up of a logic to which violence is justified and um, to, to their internal logic is uh, the best thing that could um, happen. And, and then we're left with this, um, you could say um, society in which um, the tools of that aggression and violence, the weapons um, and the words um, are not being addressed. And, and it seems that's the place or the interface for our, um, activity as Buddhists um, to rouse that, that kind of um, uh, just um, identification with non-aggression <laughs> as a virtue, uh, rather than right now, there's so much identification of aggression and violence as a virtue, you know, right. we're having so much polarization uh, around the perception of violence um, as, as one person's skillful means and other person's um, uh, just terror. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Thanks, Daniel. Going anywhere, thank just you. offer that. Yeah. That, thank you. Yeah. Well, um, I think that's might be a really good closing um, remark <laughs> or use it, use it as such since 
um, we're kind of running out of time and don't want to run on <clears throat> over too much. Um, but so we'll just um, close with um, the four immeasurables and I'll, I'll, I'll say them and everyone else is muted, but please say them to yourself, <laughs> say them aloud to yourself. Um, may all sentient beings enjoy happiness and the root of happiness. May they be free from suffering and the root of suffering. May they not be separated from the great happiness devoid of suffering. May they dwell in the great equanimity free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. By this merit, may all attain omniscience. May it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death. From the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you everyone for, um, for being here and participating and uh, it's wonderful to see um, both old friends and Sangha members and old friends who are other kinds of Sangha members and people who are new to me, but not anymore. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.